The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are back in the book of Hebrews. We took a four-week break and we looked at uh, Genesis 12 through 50. We looked at the generations of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Joseph. And we looked at the family's systems and, and what it looks like for the gospel to bring redemption to our family stories from the roots up. And that's what we did for the last four weeks. But up to that point, we had been in the book of Hebrews for quite some time. We've gone through the first six chapters already. And today we're back in Hebrews. Our, our series is called Greater, Truer, Better. And we're going to be in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. But first, I want you to turn to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verse 7, if you brought a Bible today. As we turn there, as we kind of get ready to settle into our text today, we're coming into one of these unique passages in Hebrews that's unique. And there's no other place like it in all of Scripture, the section that we're getting into over the next several weeks. We're entering into a long and very deliberate section in which the author of the book of Hebrews is laying out his argument for how vital it is that we see and understand Jesus as our great high priest. And in order for him to really begin his argument, he he needs us to, to look back to this mysterious figure from the Old Testament named Melchizedek. This priest and king that we're introduced to in Genesis, or yeah, in Genesis chapter 14. And so we, we saw the name Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 5 several, several weeks ago. I want to remind us of what we read in, in Hebrews 5. I said Genesis. In Hebrews 5, I want to remind us of what we read several weeks ago as we are teaching through the, the fifth chapter. So look with me real quick at Hebrews 5 beginning in verse 7. This is when we're introduced to Melchizedek. The author writes, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, he, Jesus, learned obedience through what he suffered. Verse 9. And being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the first time we see the name Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews. And the author here is beginning this long argument regarding Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And his desire is to clearly explain, now over the next four and a half chapters of Hebrews, he's going to clearly explain the significance of the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus. Because the hope and the confidence of the readers of of Hebrews is based on this reality that Jesus has entered the presence of God for us as high priest. That's central to the argument of the author of Hebrews. And so we we were introduced all the way back in chapter 5, verse 10. But then in in, in verse 11, he does something funny. He drops the name Melchizedek, but then in verse 11, the author says, about this we have much to say. About Melchizedek, I've got a whole lot of things I need to teach you. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So you'll probably remember, if you think back to as we taught through chapter 5 and 6, that the author wants to teach his audience about how important Melchizedek is and, and what it means for the priesthood of Jesus, but he can't go there right off the bat because his audience, the Hebrews who were receiving this letter, they had grown dull of hearing. They were, they were feeding again and again and again on milk, and they were stuck in perpetual spiritual immaturity, so the author writes to rebuke them of their dullness or their sluggishness. He, he even warns them about, you know what, if, if you don't 
If you don't pursue Jesus, you are, you, are, you are susceptible to falling into outright apostasy. And he warns them about the consequences of that. And then at the end of chapter 6, the author tells them, listen, hold fast to this hope that you have in Jesus. He is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. That's everything that leads us up to this. And so then after this one and a half chapter of rebuke, he gets back to Melchizedek, chapter 7, verse 1. And we are at our text for the day. Let's read these 10 verses in chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have descendant from them, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who, led, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, I recognize this is not the most straightforward bit of Scripture. I recognize that. The author makes the assumption that his audience has a vast understanding of who Melchizedek is and what Melchizedek has done. And so this argument is, is based on assumed knowledge. And so if you don't have a keen understanding of who Melchizedek is and what Melchizedek has done, this is very confusing. So today, my hope for us is, is, is we look at this. This is the first, this, for us understanding Melchizedek and his relationship to Jesus as far as his priesthood is concerned, this is a foundation stone that the author is laying and there's going to be other foundation stones laid alongside that upon which his primary argument is going to be built. And so though this feels a little bit odd, it is actually very important for us as Bible readers to understand the significance of Melchizedek in order for us to really track with the ongoing argument our author is going to make all the way through the middle part of chapter 10. So, all that being said, I've entitled my sermon today, What's the Big Deal with Melchizedek? What's the big deal with Melchizedek? And I simply want to answer three very basic questions for us today. Number one, who is Melchizedek? Number two, I want us to answer the question, what is Melchizedek like? And lastly, I'm hoping that we can answer the question, why does Melchizedek matter? I had a friend in my last church, his name was Melchizedek, his name was Melchizedek uh, but we never called him Melchizedek because it's a mouthful, so we just called him Melky, and so that was what everyone called him. So I'm going to probably interchange Melchizedek and Melky today, so just know I'm referring to the same person if I do that, okay? Would you pray with me? 
Oh God, we are grateful for the great honor and privilege you give us week in and week out of gathering as the saints in this place. God, we're grateful for the, for the freedom that we have to freely congregate week in and week out to pursue you, to exalt your name, to sing praises to you, to sit under the authority of your word, to be equipped for every good work, to be sent out as disciples of Jesus into Jackson County and beyond. So grateful for that, Lord. God, I pray today as we sit under this text, this confusing text, hard to understand passage, God, would you just get me out of the way? Holy Spirit, help us to hear the things we need to hear, to understand the things we need to understand, God, that we can, we can hear from you today. And God, as we hear from you today, would you do your work to soften our hearts and open our eyes and loosen up our ears and give us obedience to respond in faith to what you reveal? We invite you and we implore you to meet us in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I really struggled to come up with an opening illustration. I struggled and struggled and struggled because the argument is so unique and so specific. But I had this thought, actually, as I was walking over here, I've got like seven samples of, here's an opening anecdote that might make people laugh, but it's just a distraction from what you're trying to say, so don't use that anecdote. I have this mind, I don't want to do that. But I was reminded when I was a kid, when I was a kid, we were, we were uh, what we call Poe. We didn't have a whole lot of money. And... Uh, and we would every now and again go on these family camping trips. We had this old 28-foot Terry camper trailer, and we didn't have a whole lot of money. And so we, my dad was a logger, so in the summer times we'd load up that camper, and uh, we'd jump on my dad's pickup truck, most of us riding in the back without seatbelts because it was the 80s and it was awesome. And, and we would drive up to wherever my dad was working in Montana or Idaho somewhere, and we'd park. We never at a campground. We never had a generator. The camper was basically just like a, a wooden tent because we never had electricity or anything in it. And we would camp there, and we just lived there all summer, and it was awesome. And, uh, and uh, my parents, we never had a lot of money, but we'd have to load up on food. And we never got a lot of, like, junk food as kids because we didn't have money for it. But when we went camping, my parents would splurge a little bit, and they would sometimes get us, like, you know, junk food, which was kind of cool. But we could never afford, like, name-brand junk food. And, uh, and I remember one time we—I think this is a real memory. This might not be a real memory, but I'm pretty sure this is a real memory— I think we had this, we had soda one time, and it was so generic, it was a white can, and it literally said soda in black lettering on the can. It's like, and it was flat, and it tasted awful, and I was like, why would we go to this? Why would, when you've got Coca-Cola, and Pepsi, and Mountain Dew, and Mellow Yellow, and all these great sodas, why would we go to this, this knockoff, this lesser than thing? And, and, and so the, the, I tell you that story because it's silly and it makes you laugh. But, but also because this is sort of the idea of the text today. The author, what he's trying to convey to this audience in our 10 verses is this, this audience, as we know, is tempted to go back to the, the old ways, the old practices. And they're tempted to look back at an old, the old priesthood. Now Jesus has come. He is a new priest. He is the great high priest. He, is, he has fulfilled the law. He is the ultimate priest. But these people uh, uh, who are receiving the letter to the Hebrews, they are, they are, they are Jewish Christians who are really struggling. And they, they are, as they face persecution, as they struggle to understand the, the theology and the spiritual nature of their new faith, as they're struggling with ongoing personal sin, uh, they, they are tempted to drift away. We've been saying this from the very beginning of Hebrews. And, and what they're tempted to do is go back to this old priesthood, to go back to this white can with black letters that says priest when they have the name, brand, ultimate, king, priest, Jesus Christ. And so the author in these 10 verses is trying to help them understand how it is that Jesus Christ and his priesthood is so much greater than Levi and the Levitic priesthood. And that's the whole point of these 10 verses. Did that illustration work? Okay, all right. It's kind of 
winged that one. I'm glad it worked. Uh, so the big idea is simply this. I'll say this multiple times today. Here's the big idea what the author wants us to see in these ten verses. The greater priesthood of Melchizedek points to the ultimate priesthood of Jesus. That's what he wants us to see in these 10 verses. And we're going to build on that argument in the weeks to come. So you're not going to get the whole picture today. The greater priesthood of Melchizedek points to the greater priesthood of Jesus. Now, we're coming back into Hebrews after uh, four weeks out. And I just shared with you uh, uh, sort of what was going on in the lives of those who were receiving this letter. There's, there's a lot we know, but there's also a lot we don't know about Hebrews. I kind of wanted to just orient us again back to this book. It's interesting the things that we don't know about, about the book of Hebrews. Number one, we don't know who the author is. The book never tells us who the author is. Scholars and people have debated for centuries over who the author is, but ultimately we don't know. We also don't know exactly who the original audience was. There's evidence within the book itself that would lend us to believe these are people with an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament, probably Christian Jews who've converted from Judaism, and, and there's also evidence in the book that would lend us to believe that they are Jews who live within a Jewish culture, they're Hellen- or a, a, Hebrew, uh, a Greek culture, they're, they're Hellenistic Jews. The reason they believe that is the quotations of the Old Testament are in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So we know some things about the audience, but we don't really know for sure who the audience is and where they were. You can speculate. The other thing we don't know is we actually don't know the, ver- the specific occasion that prompted the writing of this letter. We know, generally speaking, that there was struggle and there was a temptation to turn away, but we don't know specifically what prompted the author of this book to write to these people at this time. My friend, uh, who I really appreciate, a a preacher who who preached through this book several years ago, he summarized the the purpose of the book in this way. He says, says, uh, what do we know about Hebrews? He said simply this. Hebrews was written for one purpose, to encourage Christians to urge Christians in tough circumstances to keep their faith anchored to the truth as revealed in Christ. That's the purpose statement for the book of Hebrews. He writes this, that we as Christians, both of them then, but also us today, would lift our eyes from the minutia of day-to-day life, from the distractions of life, from the pains of life, that we would lift our eyes and we would fix our eyes on Jesus, no matter what the circumstances of our lives are. And so, this audience was tempted to give up and to turn back, and the author is writing to them in multiple different ways to say, don't do it. And so in six chapters, he's been sort of systematically dismantling uh, any temptation the audience would have to turn back to their old religious Jewish practices. In the first six verses, the author has made this argument that, that Jesus is greater than angels, because they believed angels delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's some evidence that there was angel worship going on at this time in, in the church. So the author says, no, Jesus is greater than angels. He says, Jesus is greater than Moses. And he has a whole argument about that. Jesus is greater than Joshua. And now he's going on to this argument about Jesus is greater than the priesthood. And so with each argument, he's, just, he's dismantling all those smaller things that the Jewish audience may be tempted to turn to. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is greater than that. Why would you turn back to that old way when you have this new superior way in your midst? Don't turn back. And that's been his argument for six chapters. And now we're moving into it in seven chapters. He's also offered some stark warnings up to this point. Chapter 2, he warned against spiritual drift. He said, don't neglect the salvation that you have received. Chapter 3 and 4, he warned about missing out on God's rest and Chapter 5 and 6, you all probably remember this. Most recently, he warned about apostasy, the very real danger of falling away from the faith. 
I really, I really appreciate how the uh, English Standard Version Study Bible um, summarizes the theme of Hebrews as a whole. Here's what the ESV Study Bible says. Christ is greater than any angel, priest, or old covenant institution. Thus each reader, rather than leaving such a great salvation, is summoned to hold on by faith to the true rest found in Christ and to encourage others in the church to persevere. So now we're in chapter 7, and the author goes all in on Melchizedek. And he's about to make his central point. He's about to make his central point as he begins this argument as to Melchizedek is, the central, is, is of central importance in this argument that Jesus is this great high priest. And so that's all by way of preamble to answer these three questions. I'm going to try to do this quickly. Who is Melchizedek? First question. The author tells us he's the king of Salem from Canaan. So he's a Canaanite. He's the priest of the Most High God. He, he blessed Abraham, the author tells us. Abraham gave a, gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek. That's really significant. It's a really central part of the argument that's being made here in these first ten verses. Uh, he's the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. There's this language of eternality that we see associated with Melchizedek. Uh, Thomas in my small group pointed this out earlier this week. He, he is without father and mother. He has no genealogy. He has no beginning of days or end of life. Melchizedek resembles Jesus, the Son of God, continuing as a priest forever. And so all this is loaded in these few verses. So the, I'm going to try to give you my very best answer to the question, who is Melchizedek? If you want to write this down, you can. You don't have to. I don't have it on the jumbotron. I forgot. Here's the answer. Who is Melchizedek? Well, he is a mysterious Canaanite king and priest of the Most High God who is superior to Abraham, resembling Jesus, the Son of God. That's a mouthful. Who is Melchizedek? He is a mysterious Canaanite king and priest of the Most High God, who is superior to Abraham, resembling Jesus, the Son of God. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. This is where we are introduced these, to, to Melchizedek. There's only three verses in Genesis that speak of Melchizedek, but they're super important. So we need to familiarize ourselves with the story of Melchizedek as revealed to us in Scripture. It's kind of interesting that over the last four weeks, we've been in Genesis as a church. We've been looking at the family line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the 12, and the 12 sons of, of, of Jacob. And so we're actually kind of familiar with the storyline of the Old Testament especially with this first family, the, the family of Abraham. And so, so the promise to Abraham, we're introduced to Abraham at the very end of chapter 11, but really at the beginning of chapter 12. In, in the, God speaks this promise to Abraham. And then this is actually very early in Abraham's journeying. He, we, we are introduced to Melchizedek. Let's read for now just verses 17 through 20 of, of chapter 14. After his return from the defeat of, oh, I got this, uh, the Catalaomers, <laughs> I have to write down a phonetic pronunciation for this word. After his return from the defeat of the Catalaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abram, in the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abram. Now this Melchizedek, he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's all we have in Genesis about Melchizedek. Three times in, his, in, this, in these three verses, we, we see the phrase God most high. Melchizedek was a priest of God most high. Melchizedek blessed Abraham in the name of God most high, the creator of heaven and earth. Melchizedek blessed God most high for his work of deliverance on behalf of Abraham. How interesting that Melchizedek, who's introduced us as both king and priest, he speaks of God as both creator and of deliverer in these few verses. I find that interesting. And as Abraham interacts with him, he's so impressed with his interaction with Melchizedek that he gives him a tenth of everything that he owns. So what was it with this encounter that was so significant for Abraham? And we've got to remember the story of Abraham, right? Go back to Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. God speaks to Abraham out of all the people on the earth, and he makes covenant with him. He makes a promise to him. He says, leave your homeland and go to a land that I will show you. Go to Canaan. Become a pilgrim for God most high. And if you go, I will bless you. I'll make you a blessing to all the nations. I will curse those who curse you. And he makes this beautiful promise. And, and Abraham becomes a pilgrim for God most high. And he goes. He, he, he follows in obedience. And then we see his story unfolding with all its twists and its turns. Right before this in our text, we'll get into this in a few minutes, there's this bloody battle that Abraham is a part of. And he's involved in this bloody battle where he's victorious, but it's right after the battle and he's walking through the Valley of Sheva or the Valley of the Kings, which is right by modern-day Jerusalem. And he interacts and he bumps into this Melchizedek, this mysterious Canaanite priest king. Otis, a guy in my small group, he, he made the mention this week, and I hadn't really thought of this, he said, was this the first time that Abraham encountered someone else who knew God Most High? Now, God Most High had made it, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, the one true God, had made covenant with, with Abraham. But was this the first time that Abraham looked into the eyes of someone else who knew the same God that he was following? I don't know, it's just speculation. But there's this encounter in this valley. Abraham, a pilgrim of God Most High. Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High. They're having a little worship service there in the shadow of Jerusalem. And what does Melchizedek do? What does this king of Salem do? Well, he gives. That's what he does. He gives. He brings bread and wine. This is a clear gospel allusion. This is a clear allusion to the Lord's Supper, to the new covenant, to the shed blood and broken body of our Lord Jesus. And not only does he give bread and wine, he gives blessing to Abraham. And just as Melchizedek appears... Out of nowhere, it seems like, he disappears into nowhere. We see him one other time in all of Scripture before we get to Hebrews. We see him in Psalm 110. It's a, it's a significant place, but we see him only one more time. And all we have about Melchizedek are these three verses in Genesis 14. He's this mysterious priest and king who appears out of nowhere. He's not a Hebrew. He's not from the line of Abraham. He's a Canaanite. And yet he knows and serves the Most High God. His name means king of righteousness. The text tells us he's king of Salem. That word Salem is associated with the word shalom, which is the word peace. It's also, as many scholars have pointed out, the shortened version of the name of Jerusalem. And so there's this priest king who's linked with the city of Jerusalem. He's the first priest king we see associated with the city of Jerusalem, but he's not the last. Only Melchizedek and Jesus are both priest and king. In Israel, those offices were not to commingle. But in these two men, they, they come together. He's the priest of God most high. 
You know, it's interesting. It's interesting that you know, when you hear the word, if you're a student of the Bible, when you hear Canaanites or Canaan, you're probably not thinking of a people. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you're probably not thinking of a people group that was one who would worship Yahweh or the God of Israel. When you hear Canaan, you're probably thinking of idol worship. You're probably thinking of Baal. You're probably thinking of idolaters. But it's interesting, as I was doing a little research on this text this week, there, there has been some significant archaeological discoveries. In the last hundred years, they've discovered tablets in ancient Canaan that date back to 2000 BC, which is about the time of when Melchizedek and Abraham would have met in the Valley of Sheva. They found tablets that reveal that early Canaan actually worshipped one god. In early Canaan, there was one true creator God that they worshipped. They, they worshipped a supreme, transcendent being. Maybe they didn't know his name was Yahweh, but they, they worshipped a, a creator God. It was only later in the history of Canaan that the culture devolved into this polytheistic uh, Baal worship. But here, in 2000 BC or so, in the area of Jerusalem, in the Middle East... We see Melchizedek, who is a priest of God Most High, talking with Abram, who is a pilgrim of God Most High. Melchi is a, is a Canaanite priest, not of many gods, but of the Most High God. It's incredible. He's also the king of righteousness. That word for righteousness simply means the state of him who is such as he ought to be. Righteous. He's a righteous man. He's the king of peace. That word shalom, peace, it's not just the absence of conflict. We tend to think of peace in that way in our translations. But the biblical understanding of peace is so much broader than that. It comes with it the idea of restoration or wholeness or fullness or completion. Things as they ought to be. And he's from unknown genealogy. We know nothing about his parents. We know nothing about his birth or his death. Now, if you know the book of Genesis, you know that it's filled with genealogies. Everybody has a genealogy. We know everybody's ancestors and where they come from. Not so with Melchizedek. The scriptures are silent concerning his birth. They're silent concerning his death. We know nothing of his parents. We know nothing of his genealogy. But God has seen fit to include in Genesis just these three short verses. And everything that we need to know about Melchizedek is contained in these verses. All the other stuff remains a mystery which allows the author of Hebrews now to look back through history, through Psalm 110, back to Genesis 14. And he's speaking of this Melchizedekian priest in, these eternal, in this eternal language. He's this priest forever. He's without father or mother. He has no genealogy. He resembles Jesus, the Son of God, continuing as priest forever. These attributes make him perfect to point us to Jesus, who is himself the priest forever. So, first question hopefully answered. Who is Melchizedek? He is a mysterious Canaanite king and priest of the Most High God who is superior to Abraham, resembling Jesus, the Son of God. Remember, the author's aim here is to help the, help the audience see the greater priesthood of Melchizedek as pointing to the ultimate priesthood of Jesus. Second question, what is Melchizedek like? What's Melchizedek like? Well, the answer is simply this. He is a great and giving man who blesses Abraham to whom he is superior and who serves the Most High God. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at verse 4 and verse 7, we see two words used to describe Melchizedek in verse 4 and in verse 7. Verse 4, see how great this man was. Verse 7, he is superior. He is this great man who is superior to Abraham. So who is Melchizedek? And then in the middle of that, he's, he's giving blessing 
to Abraham. He's a giving man. So he is a great and giving man who blesses Abraham to whom he is superior and who serves the Most High God. Now as we go back to Genesis 14, if we pull back just a little bit from verse 17, we look at the, the, what, what led up, what led up to, to Melchizedek and Abraham meeting in the Valley of Sheva. And there was this interesting story uh, that's you know, as, as old as the story of time. You know, kingdoms can, can raging against one another, right? So in Canaan, there was these kings, these, these five kings, and there were these other kings that were to the east, and, and there, there was these four kingdoms, and they were, they were evil, and, and they were abusive, and they were, they were extorting money out of these kingdoms in Canaan. And so one day, these Canaan kings bound together, and they're like, yeah, we don't want to pay that tribute anymore to those kings of the east. We're not going to do it. Well, then the kings of the east didn't really like that, and so they decided to wage war. They come, and they wage war. That's all important because living in Canaan at the time was Abraham's nephew, Lot. And there was great responsibility as a kinsman redeemer to care for your your kin. And Abraham learns in verse 13, chapter 14 here, that his nephew Lot has been taken captive by these marauding kings from the east. He can't have that. And so what Abraham does is he's obviously a man of great wealth and influence. He, he, He musters up 318 soldiers or mercenaries. And they go after these marauding kings from the east, and they actually have victory. It's a bloody slaughter. They have victory over everybody. And he actually, not only do they have victory, not only does, does Abraham capture back Lot, but he also gets all the plunder that they stole from the Canaanite kings. And so here's Abraham, victorious. He's rescued his nephew Lot, and he's way more wealthy because he's got all this plunder he took in his battle. And this is him walking through the valley of Sheva with all of this. And this leads us up to the Melchizedekian encounter. That's when these two kings run out to meet Abraham. One of them is a king from Sodom who was part of the kingdoms that were plundered. And one of them is Melchizedek who had no part of that military action. So Melchizedek, the king of peace and righteousness, comes out to Abraham. And the king of Sodom comes out to Abraham. It's a long backstory. And as this king of Sodom approaches Abraham, he doesn't have the best of intentions. His kingdom was pillaged by these kings from the east, and Abraham now possesses all the stuff that once belonged to him. And this king of Sodom comes to Abraham, and he's like, hey, keep all the plunder. Just give me my men back. And Abraham's like, no, no, no. I know your, your, your motives are not pure. See, what that king of Sodom was trying to do is if, if Abraham would have kept all the plunder, he would have had that on Abraham. Sort of like, he's indebted to me now. He kept the plunder that belonged to me, so now, now, now he owes me something. Abraham could see through that. So Abraham says back to this king of Sodom, he says, I solemnly swear to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal or thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. And so he gives all the plunder back to this king. That was a very dishonoring thing this king of Sodom did. It was underhanded. It was, it was shifty. But then we see this other encounter with a different king. The one king who met Abraham sought to gain something, the king of Sodom. The second king, Melchizedek, met Abraham, and he sought to give something. He gave bread and wine. He gave blessing. One king dishonored Abraham. One king blessed Abraham. Does that language ring a bell to you at all? Do you remember Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Do you remember what God said to Abraham in this first promise? If you go to Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Two chapters later, we see two kings, one bringing blessing, one bringing dishonor. It's not by chance today that we're talking about Melchizedek in glowing terms. God blessed Melchizedek because he blessed Abraham. What happened to Sodom? Do you remember Genesis 19? Didn't end well for them. So as one who blessed Abraham, Melchizedek will be blessed. And so then Abraham has this incredible response. It's just, you see the word tithe or the, the illusion of tithe all throughout our, our text this morning. Verse 2, Abraham took a tenth of all that he had captured in battle and he gave it to Melchizedek. Verse 4, consider then how great this Melchizedek was. Even Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, recognized this by giving him a tenth of what he had taken in battle. Verse 6, Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Levi, collected a tenth from Abraham. So here Abraham, a giant in the Old Testament. If you're the original audience, if you're the Hebrews... And you're listening to this argument, you're seeing in, a, in, a, in the argument as it unfolds, we're seeing how that Jesus is so much greater than Abraham. It's yet another giant figure in the Jewish tradition that the author of Hebrews is saying, no, no, Jesus is so much greater. And he's making this argument with Abraham. He's this, this giant in the, in the tradition. And he's the one who walked with the promises of God. He is, he is the, the father of a great nation. He is the patriarch of Israel. And yet, in humble submission, he gives a full tenth of everything he owns to Melchizedek. In fact, our text tells us today that Abraham is the lesser, and Melchizedek is the greater. And this leads to this longer argument that the author is making. If you look at verse 5, he talks about how the people of Israel, the, the tribes of Israel, would pay a tenth to the Levites, who were the, 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 it was through the tribe of Levi, where the priesthood happened in Israelite culture. But then in verse 9, speaking of the, the Levite priests, here's what, here's what the author says. He says, the Levite priests who collected the tithe from the people of Israel who, because they were doing temple work, they paid a tithe to Melchizedek when their ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. This is a kind of confusing argument. Let me, let me do my best to unpack it for you. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. He had a son Isaac, who had a son Jacob, who had 12 sons, one of whom was Levi. And then about 12 generations after Levi came Aaron, who was the first great high priest after the law was given to the nation of Israel. And so it's in the tribe of Levi that is the priesthood of Israel that is contained within the tribe of Levi. Now, if you were part of Jewish culture, everybody, all the other 11 tribes paid tithe to the Levites. But what the author is saying, he's saying, you know, actually in the loins of Abraham on that day outside the city of Jerusalem in the valley of Sheva, when Abraham gave a tenth of all of his things to Melchizedek, the seeds of all those, all those priests was, was, was in the loins of Abraham. So it was like as if the whole nation, especially the Levitical priesthood, was paying tithe and tribute to this greater priest, Melchizedek. What the author is saying is that this is a superior priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. Now remember, this was an audience who was tempted to turn back to their old traditions, tempted to turn back to their old ways. And the author is making this argument, why would you do that? Why would you turn back to a priesthood that is subservient to the Melchizedekian priesthood of which Jesus is in the order of? So that's the argument that's being made here. It's speaking of the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek of which Jesus is part and so, 
Two questions. Who is Melchizedek? He's this mysterious Canaanite priest of the God Most High and King who is superior to Abraham, resembling Jesus as Son of God. What is he like? Well, Melchizedek is a great and giving man who blessed Abraham, to whom he is superior, and who serves God Most High. The author, remember, again and again, he's trying to help this original audience see that the greater priesthood of Melchizedek points to the ultimate priesthood of Jesus. Finally, and lastly, why does Melchizedek matter? Well, the value of Melchizedek is the way that he points us to Jesus. That's why he matters. The author of Hebrews here sees Melchizedek as a model or a pattern of the Messiah. So why does Melchizedek matter? Because he points us to Jesus, the ultimate priest. That's why he matters. Dr. Peter Gentry helped my thinking here a little bit on Psalm 110. We'll get into Psalm 110 more next week. But Psalm 110 is the only other place in the Old Testament and in Scripture outside of Hebrews and Genesis that mentions the name of Melchizedek. And in, and in Psalm 110, it's the Psalm of David, there are these two stanzas. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 7. Verse 1 through 3, the first stanza, there is a divine declaration that creates a king. And then in verses 4 through 7, there's another divine declaration uh, or divine oath that creates a priest. And that's where we see the name Melchizedek in, in Psalm 110.4, that, that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, speaking about the coming Messiah. Now the king and the priest, according to Psalm 110, are the same person, pointing us to Jesus. Both stanzas show this coming descendant of David, this coming priest king that will defeat and conquer the nations. So here in Hebrews, the author is, is sort of playing off both Psalm 110 and Genesis 14, and he's seeing Melchizedek as this model or this pattern that points his readers to the ultimate priesthood of Jesus Christ. Melchizedek is the earliest figure of someone who is both king and priest. And so, so how is he a pattern? How is Melchizedek a model of the Messiah? Well, think of it this way. Melchizedek was a priest, but Jesus is the ultimate priest. Melchizedek was a priest outside of the Levitical priesthood. He was not a minister of the law of Moses because he came way before the law of Moses was given. Now Jesus, he's the ultimate priest outside of the Levitical priesthood. He, he was not a minister of the law of Moses because Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. Melchizedek was a king of righteousness, but Jesus is the true king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness according to the translation of his name, but Jesus is the true king of righteousness because he purchased righteousness for you and for me on the cross. Melchizedek was the king of peace, but Jesus is the true king of peace. King of peace means Salem in reference to Melchizedek, but Jesus is the prince of peace who will one day bring universal peace. Melchizedek has no mother or father, but Jesus is the eternal son of God. Melchizedek is without record of parents, having neither his beginning nor his end recorded for us in Scripture, but Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He has neither beginning nor end. He's eternally one with the Father and the Holy Spirit as God the Son. Why does Melchizedek matter? Because he points us to Jesus. That's why he matters. Who is Melchizedek? He's a mysterious Canaanite king and priest of the God Most High, who is superior to Abraham. He resembles Jesus, the Son of God. He is a, he, he, what is he like? He is a great and giving man who blesses Abraham, to whom he is superior, and who serves the Most High God. Why does Melchizedek matter? He matters because he points us to Jesus. I mean, put yourself in the place of this original audience. 
Again, we have to speculate because we don't know a ton about them. But we know that there were a body of believers living in a city somewhere. Some people think Alexandria, Egypt, who knows? They were living in a Hellenistic city probably. You know the story. They were tired and beat up. They were worn out. They couldn't understand how their newfound faith in Christ related to their Judaism and their tradition of, of, of practicing uh, uh, religion in a, within a Jewish context. They, they, they were suffering at the hands of, of uh, authorities, of persecution, unspeakable persecution, abandoned by family. People in their midst were apostate, were leaving the faith. They were heart sick. They were beat up. They were tired. They were still struggling with personal sin. It was a difficult season for these men and women, tired, worn out, frustrated, unsure. And then this letter arrives, this sermon in letter format written by a man who had invested into this church, who had a voice with these people, a spiritual father, if you will. This, this sermon by letter re- re- is received by this church, and they gather in a dusty room to sit under the reading of this letter, tired and worn out. And as they're listening to the letter unfold, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. And he has a greater priesthood. They're listening to this argument unfold, and they're thinking to themselves, Yeah, why would I turn back? Why why would I turn back to a lesser priest? These words are penetrating their their tired and weary hearts. Why would I turn back? He is, yes, he is the great high priest. Why would I turn from a great high priest who lives to, to human priests who die? Man, as I was thinking about this this week, I just thought about the heartbreaking stories I've heard over the years, and I'm sure you've heard these stories over and over again of, a married couple that has been married for some length of time. Marriage is challenging and difficult. It's not perfect. There's hardships and challenges to the marriage. And somewhere along the line, a, an old flame through social media pops up. And a spouse begins to give ear to this old flame, this high school sweetheart. And they turn away from the person to whom they have covenant relationship with and turn back to this old lesser than thing that didn't work. I'm sure you've heard of those stories. It's heartbreaking. That's sort of the image here. Why would you turn back to something that didn't work? You're in covenant relationship with the Most High God. Why would you turn back? The author is begging his original audience, don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't turn from the eternal priest. He has completed the work of purification. He has ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding on your behalf. He's made purification for your sins. Don't turn from King Jesus, our great high priest, and look back instead at human institutions and human priests. Last night, or yesterday, at the, at the missions seminar that we had here at, at the Hub, I was speaking about how to live missionally uh, in our midst, and, and I'd made the point that we tend to talk about what we're passionate about. Whatever we're consuming tends to be what we talk to others about. Whatever is ever before us tends to come out in our language, in our dialogue with others. And there's this great temptation all the time for all of us to listen to the priests of our culture, the voices of our culture. It might not be bad. I'm not saying they're even bad voices, but they're not the voice of Jesus. Maybe we're not tempted to neglect Jesus and turn to human priests, literally, but we certainly are tempted to neglect Jesus and turn to human influences, aren't we? I know I am. Perhaps you've been tempted to turn away from Jesus and turn to the talking heads of our culture, these cultural priests that shape the way in which our culture goes, whether they're political talking heads or social talking heads or even people within the spiritual realm that don't point you to Jesus but say lots of things. 
So perhaps you know what it's like to be tempted to turn away from Jesus, our great high priest, and look to lesser priests. Perhaps you've been tempted to turn away from Jesus and turn to maybe not talking heads, maybe not cultural priests, but just the voices of people to whom you love. Wonderful people who've invested in your life, but it's not the voice of Jesus. Yes, you need to engage and speak and love and be in relationship with and pursue depth in those human relationships. But sometimes, if we're not careful, we can elevate the voices of the people we love above the voice of Jesus, and it gets us in lots and lots of trouble. We're in danger of living at the whim of inferior voices and inferior worldviews and inferior values. If the author of Hebrews was with us today, he would beg us to not turn to the left and not turn to the right, but to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I mean, talking heads claim to have authority, but he is King Jesus. He has ultimate authority. King Jesus has ultimate authority. He is sovereign, and he is for you. He loves you. His words are the words that give life. How important that we listen to his words. As the ultimate priest, he is also the ultimate advocate. I think of the people who love us most. No one loves us more than him. What has Jesus done for us as our priest? Well, he has gone before us to the cross. He's bore our sins. He gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice. He satisfied God's just judgment for our sin. He's given us his priestly righteousness. And now for those of us that are in Christ, he literally advocates for us to the Father. So there's no place else we ought to turn to this king with ultimate authority and this priest who advocates on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, I'm really grateful to be reminded this morning through a long and meandering path through the priesthood of Melchizedek, to be reminded again this morning that you are our high priest, that you are worthy of all of our worship. I'm grateful this morning to be reminded that you are ultimate. And so God, I pray for I pray for us, God, as we engage in this teaching over the next several weeks, as this argument of the author of Hebrews unfolds, God, would you help it not just be a cerebral thing for us, God, but I pray as we, as we hear this argument unfold in the weeks to come, Lord, that the truths that we sit under would go from our brain to our heart and would, would penetrate our hearts, God, would bring about worship and obedience and love and devotion, God, and remind us today, warn us today to not listen and give undue uh, wait to the, the voices of the cultural priests in our midst, but God, may we turn our face to you. God, may we cling to your words, which are the words of life. May we cling to the gospel, which gives us life. May we surrender to you and worship you, our great high priest. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.